Welcome to Singing Teachers Talk, the podcast that brings you great interviews, insightful discussions and advice around the topic of singing and teaching singing. Now it's over to your host for today's episode. It's me, Alexa Terry. And thank you for tuning into this week's episode where I am joined by a clinical psychologist, author and performance coach who specialises in music performance anxiety. His treatment approach includes the use of acceptance and commitment therapy and he has presented his research on this subject on an international scale. He is a faculty member at the Voice Study Centre and his book Act for Musicians, a guide for using acceptance and commitment training to enhance performance, overcome performance anxiety and improve well-being is available for purchase now. It's my pleasure to welcome David Junkers to the podcast. David, it's great to meet you. How are you? I'm lovely. Thank you for having me. Nice to meet you as well, Alexa. It's great to have you here. And as I mentioned in, in the introduction there, you're a clinical psychologist and you have almost, what, two decades, is it, of experiencing treating the lights of anxiety, mood and substance use? 17, 18 years now. Yeah, geez. Yeah. It's hard to even think of that as I say that out loud. <laughs> Whizzes past, does it? <laughs> it really does, yes. So how are you led into working with music performance anxiety and specializing in this field? I don't have a fairly elaborate answer for that other than I'm a musician myself and I, I think I was lucky enough to have started at a younger age so I didn't have too much performance anxiety when I was performing but I was just an amateur so I wasn't performing at like elite levels I was just in bands with friends and whatnot and, and also took you know um, classical piano lessons and clarinet lessons and guitar lessons so I had a decent repertoire of music training um, but not, nothing at like the elite level that I think would probably give me more anxiety if I was in you know uh, uh, the, the student shoes. So I I love music. Uh, I've always been a musician. I love kind of keeping you know one foot in both worlds, the clinical psychology world and the music world. And to be honest, this was the best answer that I could come up with was working with musicians as a clinical psychologist. And I knew that you know I just have like this natural kind of kinship with them that I I think like them. I essentially am a musician. So. It was a, a draw to me to just want to bring that kind of work closer to what I was doing clinically. So it was just like being gravitated towards musicians and thinking, okay, how can I do more of this work as a psychologist? Or that that was pretty much it. <laughs> That's what you know got me in, into doing this work. Um, I quickly learned that there's a huge niche for this, and there's a, a, a huge need, I should say, too, uh, in that you know there's so many different ways to treat music performance anxiety, and there's yet like one truly evidence-based approach that like kind of you know is superior when compared to other uh, methods in, in research trials so the sky is essentially the limit for uh you know people to kind of come up with a way that's going to be effective and research it and, and and have it be borne out by the evidence here so i i jumped at the chance when i was doing my dissertation to work with a musician using a newer therapy as we'll talk about obviously act acceptance commitment therapy because i knew that uh, thus far you know there was a lack of like good methodological rigor in how these these psychotherapies were being studied in the lab so to speak so i wanted to bring a little bit more methodological precision and rigor to the study of music performance anxiety treatment uh, and 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 I, I hate to say the rest is history, but it's kind of true. The rest kind of is history. I've I've been just on that mission ever since to to bring essentially what we call in in clinical psychology, and I'm pretty sure they have this in education too, uh, an evidence-based practice model of care to the treatment of musicians, you know, where you know what the research says, 
you know where the research stands for when he, any any particular therapy, um, whether it's a promising treatment or it's shown full efficacy, meaning like it it can stack itself up against the big boys and it definitely competes well. Uh, plus the combination of that and knowing who your patient is, you know, knowing their beliefs, knowing their values, knowing their experiences, and trying to match them to people that have gone through research, because uh, there's there's obviously a lot of underrepresented people um, who are not shown in, in research studies as uh, extensively. So just kind of knowing how to apply research to the person in front of you, as well as applying your own clinical expertise and, and judgment calls, you know, when necessary. So essentially what I just described there is the evidence-based practice model care. So I think that is missing, unfortunately, in performance coaching and performance psychology. So that was another answer to your question, then. a rather long-winded answer to your question that I wanted to bring that kind of model of care into performance psychology too. So, Sure. And can you help us understand what music performance anxiety is? Sure. I'm of the belief that it's a version of social anxiety disorder. And perhaps I think that way because I'm clinically trained. If you look at the diagnostic manual for psychologists, you know, the very large purple, it's not purple, used to be gray book, uh, the DSM, uh, there is a subtype of social anxiety disorder called performance only subtype. And music performance anxiety would be included there as well as public speaking anxiety or any kind of anxiety in, in a performance setting doesn't have to be either of those two. It could be something related, uh, maybe even sports performance anxiety. You know, if you're giving a performance, so to speak, in front of an audience, then uh, this would count as a version of social anxiety disorder. However, there's there's a large debate in the NPA researcher community that it, it's not that it might be a version of specific phobia. It might be panic disorder. It might be a version of generalized anxiety disorder. Uh, there's there's debate there, but I'm certainly of the opinion that it is social anxiety. So w when you have social anxiety, you you just have this fear of doing things in front of others, essentially. And uh, when you combine that fear with other symptoms that are highly distressing, uh, then then you essentially have a disorder. So long story short, I'm trying to be as simple as I, as I can be in my explanation here. It, the disorder is not just the presence of symptoms only, it's also the presence of symptoms plus distress over having symptoms. And I think that's that's a useful framework to, to think of MPA because I think we see cases like that all the time where you have someone who doesn't just have the symptoms of MPA. And by that, I mean cognitive symptoms, physiological arousal symptoms, behavioral symptoms, but they also have uh, certain emotions on top of anxiety that is distress. They might feel ashamed of themselves for having the symptoms. They might feel angry at the world for having the symptoms. Um, and there's other examples I can give there. So according to that framework, then this person would have social anxiety disorder because they have symptoms plus distress on top of the symptoms. So I, I think it's a useful way of thinking when describing MPA cases. What might the voice teacher be able to pick up on symptom-wise? What are the visible clues that we could note or relate to being music performance anxiety? Sure. That's a good question. And I break it down in terms of four categories when I'm training music teachers to be on the lookout for these types of symptoms. Uh, we all know the physiological arousal symptoms, and I'm sure we're all painfully aware of what it feels like to feel anxious, right? So I, I don't have to kind of list all those, you know, tachycardia, shortness of breath, um, you know, uh, you know what I mean. Uh, you, you want to be on the lookout for those in addition to the second category is cognitive symptoms. So what your mind is doing when anxious, you know, worry about making a mistake, for example, worry about the implications of making a mistake. And it's not just actually worry that makes up this category. You also have like an attentional narrowing effect where you're just kind of locked into uh, someone in the audience that you're convinced is judging you poorly, like a Simon Cowell looking figure, or uh, just like a thought that's running kind of rampantly in your head that also poses the same level of threat to you and your attention is kind of narrowed onto that thought, like, oh, I'm going to make a mistake and I just can't stop thinking about it, et cetera. So you've got cognitive symptoms, physiological arousal symptoms, 
which by the way, are a little bit harder to spot for an onlooker. So the third category I think is a little bit easier. And I, I make that clear when training singing teachers. The third category is behavioral symptoms. And you've got actually two different types of behavioral symptoms when it comes to MKA. You've got avoidance or anxious behaviors. And here's where it gets a little complex. Within your avoidance, you've got two subcategories of obvious examples of avoidance, like someone is just not showing up uh, for their performances or they're never soloing, they're never auditioning. Uh, these are just like obvious signs that the person likely has cognitive and physiological arousal symptoms because just not showing up. So there's probably some level of MPA symptoms that is preventing them from showing up. Uh, but that's not usually the case with, you know, elite performers or elite students in training. They show up. So you have to be on the lookout for more covert or kind of under the radar avoidance symptoms. So I call these the, the covert behavioral avoidance symptoms for obvious reasons. Uh, these are you know, not making eye contact with the adjudicators during a juried performance. Uh, holding onto your sheet music, you know, as if it was like a like a safety blanket or something like that, and never letting go because you're not sure what to do with your hands or your body. Holding onto the accompanist piano and just never letting go. Uh, positioning yourself further and further away from the audience. I worked with a violist once who used to be a violinist, but she switched to the viola section because it was further away from the audience, and she didn't want to be as close to the audience because she was worried that that would make her more anxious. Uh, and and. The list certainly is more extensive than that, but you have these more, more like subtle signs to be on the lookout for that it kind of takes a trained eye to detect there. Um, lastly, uh, I'll skip over anxious behaviors because I, I think it's it's fairly understandable. You can you can tell when someone is anxious just based on their body language. So um, I do train them in, in subcategories to be on the lookout for, for those, but that's a little less important. The signs of distress are also equally important. So if you can pick up on the language of shame in particular, because shame-related distress is incredibly common with MPA cases. If your student is saying things like, you know, compared to other students, I just don't have it together. I'm not as good. You know, if they kind of devalue their sense of self-worth or their abilities, uh, and you hear them talk like that, that is likely shame related to performance anxiety. And, and this is what is the distress component that makes that a disorder, in my opinion, because again, you don't just have the symptoms, you have the distress on top of the symptoms there. So when training teachers I teach them to be on the lookout for these categories here, in particular, avoidance behaviors and distress, because those are kind of red flags there you want to be on the lookout for. If you see them, you know this is a problematic case and you probably want to make an intervention with that person. Mm. And apologies if this is really like obvious and transparent, but it seems like these aren't just related to performing on stage in front of an audience, but they could actually present when you're one-to-one -one in a singing lesson where they have to sing a passage on their own. Of course. Yeah, uh, this is why I think this is a version of social anxiety, because it doesn't just present in like a performance hall or, you know, uh, like a major performance setting. It could be any kind of social interaction, too, where you fear that you're being judged by the other person or, or people. Present. So, mm. yeah, but I'm biased. I, I think it's a version of social anxiety. So not everyone else agrees with me, so I mm. can give them that. And Bast recently spoke to Rafaela Cavino for episode 76 of this podcast, and she's a performer herself and founded Applause for Thought, which is a mental health community interest company for performing artists. And she explained that she experienced an emotional breakdown, but she hadn't had any previous mental health problems that she'd kind of Ooh. known about. Ooh. And I was reflecting on it and it, it made me wonder whether there is one person who's more likely to experience MPA over another, Ooh. or is it, can it surface at any time? That's an excellent question, and there certainly are risk factors that I make uh, teachers and other practitioners aware of. Um, being female, unfortunately, uh, makes you more likely to have MPA than being oh, male. Yes. 
I mean, I, who knows that that actually, I, we do know it's not just due to self-reporting bias. Um, it, this is true in anxiety disorders at large here. Uh, I think it's something like one and a half to two times highly, more highly prevalent with females and males. So um, that that is one, you know, uh, risk factor to be aware of there. What else? Uh, being perfectionistic, as you can likely imagine, will set you up for not just MPA, but a variety of different disorders, including social anxiety disorder, of which MPA is an example. Uh, being classically trained or undergoing classical training. Unfortunately, there's there's some interesting theoretical discussions about this. Uh, I don't know if I'm aware of any like more hardcore science in support of this, but the discussions that I've read thus far seem pretty accurate. There, there's something about classical music training and the performance settings that is very formal, you know, uh, in which these performances are taking place, that the idea of making mistakes seems a little bit more high costly. And uh, therefore you're, you're kind of driven to be perfectionistically avoidant of making mistakes. So uh, you can blame it on the context in which these students are trained in, you know, there, there's like a, a prizing of virtuosity and a prizing of perfectionism that is just kind of like unspoken in classical music institutions and also in classical music performance halls uh, once you're a professional. So, so yeah, these are risk factors here. So if you check off these boxes, and unfortunately you're probably more likely, age is another risk factor too. If you're younger, you're more likely to have it than if you're older, just generally speaking. Uh, there's also more situational risk factors too we can talk about if you'd like to, but uh, those are less likely to have someone develop a disorder. These are just kind of settings in which you happen to be performing and we are probably going to be having performance anxiety in those settings, but that doesn't equate to a disorder in my mind. So. For example, if you have a fear of failure, if you have a high ego investment in the performance, um, if, if there's an evaluative threat, if the audience is you know, evaluating you, if someone is evaluating you, then those kind of situational risk factors certainly do exist. There. And if you're someone who checks off all these boxes, then yeah, unfortunately, you're likely going to have MPA. I'm Not sorry, forever, but just for... Uh just for some time in your life, you're probably going to have it. Yeah. I'm slightly worried because I'm checking off quite a lot of those boxes and I'm oh, no. to like crippling audition anxiety that I had when I was a professional performer and thinking, hold on, <laughs> I'm thinking there might be a link there. Um, yeah. And you mentioned age there. Can you just describe yeah. a little bit about what age has to do with it? Uh, there's an excellent series of studies done by Diana Kenny, who's by far the world's leading, leading expert on all things MPA. She literally wrote the book on MPA um, in 2011, was her publication date. So she and her colleagues in Australia had surveyed all the eight major state orchestras and got a decent response rate. So they found that of all professional orchestral musicians in Australia, at least uh, those who have responded, I think there was 377 who responded. Uh, the the most anxious block was the block of age between 20s and 30s there. So uh, if you look at you know what's happening during the age range, many of them likely were students, even though presumably these were professionals uh, at work here, but that's the age at which most students falls between 20 and 30 there. So it's it's something about that age range that just lends itself more poorly to developing anxiety. And if you think about it, I mean, professionals are more used to performing under pressure than students are. So it's likely just like a lack of experience problem, you know. Um, but there there's also there's also other risk factors, I think, that that just lend themselves more poorly. Like you just don't have a lot of uh, coping skills. You don't have a lot of time built up or experience built up in dealing with like major uh, pressureful situations, essentially. So uh, that would be my best guess as to why younger performers are stuck more than older ones mm. and they're also evaluated more i'm sorry to interrupt uh, i had a follow-up thought sometimes i have follow-up thoughts excuse my time in there <laughs> they're evaluated they're evaluated like all the time you know by professors and, and like you said maybe even in the music lessons they're being evaluated so 
I think professionals are less likely to be evaluated as consistently as, as students are. So perhaps that has something to do with the age range, just by virtue of being student, uh, by virtue of being evaluated. Mm. I guess that highlights the need for this safe environment to create uh, for our pupils and our students as teachers so that they know that mistakes are allowed and where we can safely devise a protocol that they can follow to cope in those situations where they are being judged. So other than the acceptance and commitment therapy that you use as an approach, what else would you be encouraging voice teachers to implement to help students who may have started a bit later on in their journey into music to help them maybe diminish or reduce the possibility of MPA? That's a good question. Uh, there are certain relationship qualities that exist between therapist and client that are certainly replicatable outside of that world, outside of that dyad there. Uh, and these are, of course, empathy, unconditional positive regard, um, having a good working alliance, meaning like you agree on what you're doing, essentially, and you agree on the goals and the methods to achieve them. So I talk about that when training singing teachers that, you know, these relational qualities certainly exist in the teacher-student diet or the coach and coaching-client diet. So if you're noticing that you have these kinds of qualities already built into your relationship, then it's likely you're already going to be of help because these are very robust predictors of a good psychotherapy outcome, kind of regardless of the therapy being used, whether it's ACT or CBT. If these relational qualities exist, then that's a good thing, basically, for the therapist and the client. Uh, so you're already likely helping that person if you have cu cultivated that kind of relationship with your student. Um, in addition, if you're looking for non-ACT uh, interventions here, compassion-focused work is really key. And I talk about this in the book. Uh, I dedicated an entire section in chapter 11 on training and compassion and how that really helps people to kind of overcome mistakes and overcome the fear of making mistakes there too. So if you notice your student is a little on the perfectionistic side, yes, training and act can be useful there, but in particular training and giving compassion to oneself and receiving compassion from others, and there actually is legit training in doing this. There are compassion-focused therapies that exist that kind of expose you to positive affect and expose you to receiving compassion more often so that way you're not kind of threatened by these experiences. So that is known to, to be helpful in mitigating anxiety and mitigating depression. Um, the types of anxiety and depression that is, uh, how can I phrase this? The, the in which the engine is self-criticism, in which the engine is a fear of mistakes. So if you're working with a student who really suffers in that particular way, uh, and you can probably get a sense of that, you know, if they just are berating themselves for making mistakes, you know, left and right, and they just seem to be very threatened by that, then training them in compassion-focused work, I think, would be very useful. And like ACT, you can be a non-clinical practitioner and train them in compassion-focused work. So you don't have to be a therapist. Mm, that's good to know. And and speaking of acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT, can you explain what that is and what the principles are that make that up? Sure, sure, sure. So ACT is part of a newer mindfulness and acceptance wave of behavioral psychotherapies that have become popular in the last 20 or 30 years or so. And if you've been in therapy in the last 10 years, chances are uh, the style was probably ACT or ACT consistent because they really have become highly prevalent. So these are mindfulness and acceptance based, meaning uh, as compared to the previous wave, the cognitive behavioral wave, the CBT wave, if you will, if you're more familiar with that uh, acronym, uh, the goal on that predecessor wave was to change the way you think so that way you'll feel more um, calm or your behavior will be more adaptive and more you'll think more balanced. Uh, within the mindfulness and acceptance wave, aka the third wave, the newest wave, uh, ACT and these types of therapies say you don't necessarily need to jump into your mind and change the content of your thoughts, even though those thoughts are like highly like present in your mind, you can just change the way that you're relating to them through mindfulness, through acceptance work. So 
essentially uh, it, it teaches you to just cut down on efforts to get rid of thoughts you don't like and get rid of feelings you don't like and just learn to coexist with them peacefully. Learn to kind of uh, create a neutral relationship with anxiety so that you're not in like this adversarial kind of tug of war role with you and your anxiety, you and your thoughts. You know, we're always trying to put energy into getting rid of them or fighting against, you know, rather you're just kind of allowing them to be uh, through mindfulness and acceptance training. And, and that's really useful, I think, in my opinion, compared to the processor wave. Now, I might be biased in, in saying that I, I'm more of an acquisition than a CBT one, even though I was trained in CBT. I think there's good research and support that when you do over-engage in trying to change your thinking, your attention is there. Your attention is not on your performance. Your attention is not on giving a public presentation if you got public speaking inside. And so there's really something to like creating a sense of presence that I think ACT and mindfulness and acceptance-based therapies uh, instill in the clients rather than CBT. And, you know, God bless CBT. I'm a huge fan of it. Uh, that style of therapy may not uh, lend itself as easily to like being fully immersed and fully present with what you're doing there. So, so it's mindfulness and acceptance-based. It's also values-based. You should know that. Um, by that, I mean, you know, once you've got the mindfulness and acceptance-based skill set under your belt, now what? You know, like if you can relieve yourself of the suffering of your MPA, there's still that question, well, what, what else do you want to do here? And that's where the values work is really useful. If you can identify what you value as a performer and, and translate it from this big picture kind of nebulous thing like a value into like a concrete behavioral action or actions that you can actually insert into your performances more often than you're self-reinforcing. You know, you're you're leading yourself towards your own valued aims and valued ends more often through your own decisions and through your own behavior. For example, if you value expressing yourself and you know that about yourself, then you start to look for more opportunities to express yourself within your performances because doing so revitalizes you and re-energizes you. So uh, that's really useful in treating MPA cases too, because again, it's not just about relieving them of their symptoms of MPA, which mindfulness and acceptance-based work will do for sure. It's all about like re-energizing their love of performing and getting them to learn how to do that on their own and to be self-determined with their uh, achieving their performance outcomes there. So that's where the values work is helpful too. Mm. And a lot of us are not clinical psychologists, although it, it may feel like we need to be in the room because we are often faced with an open space which we've designed so that the person can be open and express how they're feeling. And often that can be tears or a problem. So sure. how can us teachers who don't have the therapy background or I guess the remit, how can we put this in place where it's it's safe and moral? Sure, good question. Uh, the first answer is I would get trained, um, first of all, in mental health first aid. So if you're not yet trained or if you know, anyone listening is not yet trained, it's fairly easy to do. It's a training act that exists internationally. So undoubtedly your country of origin has some kind of training available on that. So what that does is it helps you to look for signs and symptoms of common disorders that your students students are likely experiencing and just knowing the proper referral channels for what to do. And it, it totally works to instill confidence in the practitioner that they they can handle these situations more effectively. Um, in addition to that, if you're looking to get trained in doing some performance coaching work to handle performance anxiety or to handle other performance related challenges, like perfectionism as it relates to performance or burnout as it relates to performance, then I'm of the opinion that you don't have to be a therapist to do that. Uh, this is what we have been developing the Voice Study Center, a model for training singing teachers to deal with performance-related challenges, not like personal issues of a non-performance uh, matter, but you know things like MPA, things like performance enhancement work even. And, and you have to be clear on where you stand with your, your training, with your student. You know, If you're brand new at it and you have no idea what you're doing, then you have to state that. So maybe you could be of help, but you probably want to be trained more adequately so that way you know what MPA is, you know, like uh, 
uh, in what ways your client is stuck and you know what to do about it from an act perspective. So like any new professional development skill set, you just want to be trained to a basic level of competency so that way you're able to practice independently. But I'm still of the opinion that you want to get supervised pretty consistently so that way you're just not flying blind. And do you currently have any courses coming up at the Voice Study Center that we can get involved with? I just gave one uh, a couple weeks ago, unfortunately. Uh, so I was just talking with Debbie Winter, the director, about this. Uh, we, we need to make this a more regular thing because there's a very strong demand for it. So uh, stay tuned for more info about that. You can log on to voicestudycenter.com or the Voice Geek Facebook group for more regular updates. But uh, I'm, I'm currently supervising some voice teachers that I've already trained. Uh, I usually do that after, after they graduate from the course here. So. And that, again, I can't overstate the importance of that enough there. If you have taken any kind of ACT course and you're thinking that you're confident and ready to start, be supervised. You need to be evaluated for your for your readiness to do this kind of work because you don't want to fly blind when, when opening up, you know, a student's personal anxiety issues related to their performance. So, yeah, supervision works. So if we're waiting for your course, which I'm sure we'll keep our BDI on, um, sure. what would be, and this is a very arrogant question of mine, <laughs> um, what would be kind of your top tip for us to help somebody with performance anxiety or music performance anxiety in the moment? That is a tough question because I usually explain things in terms of like a, a like, like how a calculus would, professor would explain algebra. You know, like I, I think my explanation might be too involved, but if I had to give a quick elevator pitch for how to do this easily, um, there's a certain skill set that you can pretty easily recognize and, and be trained in called diffusion. And this is part of the ACT process. This is one of six. Uh, you mentioned there are six processes within the ACT training. Uh, this is one of them. In my opinion, this is probably the easiest and, and fastest you can implement. So you have to have some talking points in order first to be able to illustrate to your student what a state of fusion with your thoughts are. And then diffusion is the remedy for that. So I usually, I talk with my hands to illustrate these things. I usually uh, Say, imagine you can see into my mind right now. And for the listener who's not able to see, I'm just using my hands right up on my face here. Imagine these are my thoughts. When I'm in a fused state with my thoughts, my thoughts are just like right here. They're so front and centrally located. They, they could be about me. They could be about my performance anxiety. They could be about who knows what. Uh, and because of that kind of relationship, I feel compelled to do something about this thought because I perceive it as reality. However, when I'm less fused, there's a better distance between them and me. So I'm extending my, my hand out about a foot or so. So there's space between my thought and myself. I'm able to see it for what it is. It's a thought about my performance. It's not reality. But what's right here? Ah, it's real. I have to respond. Well, that's the thing. You don't actually have to do anything about this thought. You don't have to respond to it if you choose not to. So diffusion then is that ability to take a thought from right here in mind where it's super front and central to right here where you can just recognize it for what it is. This is a thought of a mistake. This is not a mistake. And that, you know, speaks to the symbolic nature of, of language and cognition. You know, we are referring to mistakes through our thinking, through our language, but mistakes in the actuality, uh, the actual event of a mistake and the thought of a mistake are two separate things. But you want to train yourself to just see it for what it is. And there's a ton of diffusion techniques that you can easily learn. Um, you can preface your thought with the following preface. I noticed the thought that, and then you just insert the literal content of your thought second. Like, for example, I noticed the thought that I'm going to make a big mistake in my audition tomorrow. I noticed the second thought that it's going to be terrible. And what are people going to think of? And I noticed the third thought, et cetera. If you get in the habit of preface, 
prefacing your thinking with that phrase, then it promotes noticing of thinking rather than kind of blind reactions to thinking. And that enables flexible behavior in response to your thinking. You, you can kind of move more freely with these thoughts present when you see them for what they are, essentially. Mm. So that's the skill of diffusion. And that greatly helps with, with people that have a lot of kind of anxious thoughts that are just, just like mm. super front and center in their minds. So it creates distance between them and the kids. Brilliant. Thank you for that. And with these tactics, implementations, interventions, whatever you want to call them, work for the voice teacher themselves as well in terms of when we go into a room, we might be a new teacher, we might have done this for years, but if we're meeting new singers who are yet to build a relationship with and we go, ah, I'm new, I have to put all of this sure. information into you and do you like me? They're quite, it's quite a performance anyway as a, as a voice teacher, I guess we're certain personas of ourselves if you like without getting too philosophical and deep um mm -hmm. is that a type of music performance anxiety and can these work on us when we are the lecturer yes absolutely I, I don't know if i would call it a music performance anxiety but it's certainly a version of performance anxiety more generally speaking mm -hmm. you know you're feeling like your sense of professional self is, is on the line and you're you're subject to like evaluation or scrutiny from the student or or from your own thoughts, your own evaluations there. Uh, yes, you can certainly use ACT skills in any kind of work-related stress environment. You know, uh, ACT is actually efficacious in treating work-related stress. So if you want to view that as a work stressor, then certainly ACT would be useful there. Um, I don't know if there's specific, more specific research on like teaching-related performance anxiety, uh, but certainly there's there's MPA-related ACT research, and as you obviously know, there's sports-related, there's public speaking anxiety. So there are things that are close enough to that kind of problem that I think you can trust that the ACT skill set will certainly help you. I, I have full confidence that ACT can help a teacher in that situation. Right? Brilliant. And we know that you have your, your book, which is brilliant. And can you tell us what other resources that you would encourage us to check out on MPA or anything around this area or with using ACT? Sure. Um, when it comes to MPA, there's uh, obviously work by Diana Kenny. You should definitely learn about that. She wrote the book. I have it over here. I have it, you know, pretty much by my bedside. Uh, I'm, I'm that big of a nerd. Um, <laughs> uh, Psychology and Music Performance Anxiety, that's her, her big magnus opus there. So start with that, even though that's a heavy starting place there. Um, more user-friendly stuff. Uh, Noah Kejiyama, the Bulletproof Musician, he's a really good use, uh, resource. He, he does a blog and he does podcast interviews. I actually just met with him a couple of weeks ago. And his website is bulletproofmusician.com. He talks at length about performance anxiety with musicians. So that's another great starting point there. When it comes to learning ACT, uh, it depends. If, if you're a clinician, you have a whole host of different ways to train yourself here. If you're a non-clinician, I think the, the list is a little bit shorter, but I see no problem in a non-clinician showing up to a, a seminar for therapists because you're learning the same information essentially, but you should be supervised in your use of that. So that way you're not behaving like a therapist is behaving here. So um, be on the lookout for my next ACT for MPA short course through uh, the Voice Study Center. You can certainly contact me for more training opportunities because ACT actually has a, a listserv that we're all a member of and a webpage. Uh, that webpage is contextualscience.org that lists a bunch of training opportunities available too. So you can contact me for more info or you can go to those resources too. Great. And just before we let you go, what would you like to see happen in the future with MPA treatments and in the research? Is there something that you feel is missing or needs to be spoken about? Oh, man. How much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> we'll just let you keep rolling. I'll go off and get a cup of tea. 
Okay, yeah, yeah. There, there's a lot that needs to be done there. Um, I guess the short answer is it depends on if you're talking about ACT as a clinical psychotherapy and the research behind that or ACT as a non-clinical coaching intervention. You probably are more concerned with the non-clinical one, so let's start there. Um, as of now, the research I've ever seen at the Voice Study Center is just focused on the role of performance coaching and, and the role of singing teacher as performance coach administering this work here. So by that, I mean, they're not using this with current students within the lesson. They're actually dedicating like an additional hour of their week serving as a performance coach and then administering act, you know, to students with performance anxiety. And I've overseen five studies there and, and each is fairly consistent with its positive results. Uh, in each case, the singing teachers have been able to replicate the work that I've done as a psychotherapist using act as a psychotherapy. Okay, so. We have, you know, a reasonable amount of evidence showing that when a singing teacher is a performance coach and they're replicating my work almost, you know, to a T, they're achieving the same results. But that begs the question, you know, what if you're a teacher that doesn't have time, as many teachers obviously don't, to dedicate an additional hour every week to be a performance coach to your students and to add that service to your university? You know, what if you just want to weave these kind of things into your lesson, you know, weave discussions or techniques into the lesson here? We're still trying to figure out what best practices look like for doing that because we don't have a ton of research in support of that yet. So anecdotally, I know the co-author of my book, Elvira de Pavipona, is a singing teacher based in, in Vienna. She she does act within the lesson. So her style is just kind of weaving it in organically and just kind of noticing, oh, I think you might be fusing with your thoughts. Let me explain what that means. And here's a diffusion technique that you can make use of to help there or or some other, you know, kind of quick and easy technique there. Uh, for, for some students, maybe that could work better, just the organic approach. For others, maybe they would take better to a more structured approach within the lesson, you know, where the teacher is saying, okay, we got five to 10 minutes here. We're just going to do act. We're not going to talk about technique or anything musical. We're just going to focus on act. Um, whereas some students would benefit more fully from the 100% performance coach role, you know, like like we've been doing here at the Boy Study Center, where the singing teacher is, is pausing the role as teacher and just being coached for the entire hour there. So I think we need to tease apart what type of student would respond best to these types of interventions, kind of comparing the interventions to see how the students respond and what kind of student variables um, would make them more likely to respond well to, you know, first approach, second approach, third approach. Today. So. So that needs to be teased apart there. We need to figure out what works best for what type of student, and then that'll help carve out better, like more informed best practice guidelines for using this stuff in practice here. So hopefully that answers your question for the non-clinical side there. Yeah, absolutely. And then for the clinical side, what do you think? For the clinical side, oh boy. All right, I need at least 20 minutes. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> Thus far, ACT has yet to be compared to any other psychotherapy treatment for MPA. And, and that is just a, an absolute necessity in establishing the efficacy of, a, of an approach here. You know, if you are doing any kind of psychotherapy research and you're not comparing your approach to something else, then you, you're not going to get laughed out of the room, but, you know, you're not going to be taken seriously. So thus far, ACT has just been compared to itself. And uh, in each of these cases, there's been a number of studies uh, in which ACT has been investigated as an MPA treatment. They're all showing positive results, but because there is no comparison therapy, you don't know how it would stack up. So you have, you have to just say it's a promising treatment. It's like a new and promising way of treating MPA. If you take an already established treatment like CBT or maybe Alexander Technique or something along those lines that has some research support behind it, and then compare it to ACT and see how it does, I think you can you can be more strong in your uh, in your conclusions that ACT is doing something there. So if you're predicting ACT would achieve X outcome, and if you see that you know across at least two well-controlled studies, then you could be more confident that okay, ACT actually does what we purport it will do here. So it needs to be compared at least to a control condition, ideally to another um, MPA treatment, in order to establish its efficacy at treating MPA. So 
long story short, the establishing uh, of efficacy condition really needs to be met for any kind of new therapy, just so you know that it actually does what you're forced to do. So that's the boring answer to your question. Uh, the more exciting answer to your question is, is this. CBT is a very good symptom reducer within clinical anxiety studies, uh, meaning if you're the kind of musician who just wants to reduce your, your symptoms of MPA, you don't really care about anything else, then maybe CBT would be a better fit for you. Whereas ACT, at least with this growing research pool that we've been creating here, um, seems to be a better behavioral enhancer, meaning it's leading to higher performance ratings according to independent adjudicators than CBT, at least that's the hypothesis. So. Uh, I think teasing those different outcomes apart further to see, is this true, you know, across multiple studies here, you know, that ACT is actually leading to higher performance quality than CBT, where CBT is leading to symptom reduction better than ACT is. That's certainly going to enhance your best practice guidelines abilities there. Uh, if you're a musician who cares more about one of those types of outcomes, and you can pick between CBT versus ACT there. So, so that's uh, another place to go with this research. But um, yeah, that's a long answer to your question here. That's brilliant. Uh, David, it's been such a pleasure spending some time with you today. So where can people actually find out more about you and get in touch? Sure. So my webpage is is just about done. Uh, I'm finishing it right now, actually. So uh, if this is October 2022, then it'll be done. So actformusicians.com is where you can start. If this is before October and you're hearing this, uh, you can certainly contact me through the voicestudycenter.com. That's uh, C-E-M-T-R-E.com. Um, where else? You know, I'm on ResearchGate, which is like social media for researchers. You can find me there. You can actually download all my, my research articles there if you'd like. And just Googling me, just old-fashioned Google. You can find me through there too. Brilliant. David Junkers, thank you so much. Thank you. So did that whet your appetite? Want more of where that came from? Then quench your thirst for knowledge by nerding out in our store where you can purchase a whole host of specialist educational videos for singing teachers, from building your business to fixing vocal faults. Or join our membership to get access to them all in your own geeky CPD library. Head over to www.basttraining.com forward slash store to get going. That's www.basttraining.com forward slash store.